In this series, we look at the underlying causes of political polarization. We've talked to political scientists and psychologists and sociologists. Who are you going to call to solve this problem? You call an economist. Don't laugh. You call an economist. But in this episode, we'll be talking about what economists can tell us about the underlying causes of this. Economics has a weirdly distorted view of human behavior, that we're all rational maximizers who use our unusually big brains to wisely calculate every decision as we strive to get to the top. We'll ask the question, why don't people trust economists? There's a growing school of thought that says the traditional answers to those questions may not be the correct ones. The idea that markets work perfectly is no longer tenable. Welcome back to Polarize, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and culture and how to fix them. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor. So my phone rang and I picked it up. Hello? And it says it's an important call from Sweden. Oh, hello. I'm calling from the Nobel Prize in Stockholm. Okay. And I thought to myself, well, now that you woke me up, just go ahead. <laughs> and then uh, someone, a uh, very serious person, told us, uh, told me that you've been awarded the, um, the full name of the prize that I don't yet know. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll work on it. And I said, oh, me? <laughs> Abhijit Banerjee and French-born Esther Duflo have jointly won this year's award for their work on fighting global poverty. So joining us in the studio is Esther Duflo, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, co-author of Good Economics for Hard Times. Esther, welcome to Polarized. Thank you. Esther, it's a great book, and it's kind of one of those books which I know I'll put on the shelves and just keep taking off. You know, every time I kind of think about something, I think, hang on. What did it say in that book about this so that I, I don't fall into all the kind of usual traps? Um, but why did you, I'm interested, why did you write it? I mean, you know, it's a, a lot of work. I, I, I mean, I, I, there's so much in it. What is the kind of core purpose for you and for your husband in writing the book? So interestingly, when we had finished our previous book, we thought we were done with writing books. I thought I had about one book in my system, which was <laughs> Poor Economics, which was very close to our core area of research. And then we, we realized uh, somewhere in 2016 that uh, many of the core debates that people were having uh, in Western Europe, in the U.S., uh, were fundamentally economic issues, or at least had were issues that, had, that have a lot of economics in it, like immigration or trade or Brexit, for that matter. But yet... Economists seem to have no place in these conversations. And we thought, well, we we should try and do something about it. Not to give people answers necessarily, but to show, you know, at least an, a way to reason about these things in, in a different way than going at it with just emotions and ideology. So we, we wrote this book for hope in a way that the conversation could improve. And And that's... Kind of quite a leap of faith, isn't it? I mean, we th th this program, has, its title suggests, is about polarization, and you know, one of the things we return to over and over again in our conversations is that 
you know, part of the kind of polarization, part of the rise of populism is people are not interested in facts. And there's quite a lot in your book about the fact that you're wanting to use a, a sophisticated, progressive understanding of economics to counter polarization. But why do you even believe that's possible? Because it kind of you look around the world and you just think, well, people just don't seem interested in facts. One has to hope that it is possible. And I, I think it's the result, in a way, of a failure of economists in a large part and in, to some extent the rest of uh, sort of uh, social sciences, intellectual class, in trying to, uh, to communicate to the, to the broader public. So economists are the least trusted experts about their own field of expertise. There was a YouGov uh, poll in the UK that showed them that 25% of people believe economists when they talk about economics. And that's the lowest possible level of trust saves for politicians. And we repeated the same survey in the US and we found exactly the same answer. So you're absolutely right. People are, people are not willing to listen to economists, but they will listen to facts in other sectors. For example, they trust doctors and nurses. They even trust weather forecasters. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that people, you know, somehow have abandoned reason in, in general. I think it's more that economics has gone in a very ideological path in some sense, uh, taking our, you know, the assumptions that power our models as assumptions that are true in the world, even when it wasn't the case. And frankly, in some sense, as for, for many years, I sold people a bill of gold, goods in terms of how simple things were and where this self-interest lied and, you know, you have to tighten your belt because eventually it will come back to you in some form of, you know, trickle-down magic. And so naturally, people after at some point were like, well, where is it? <laughs> like, where is the trickle-down? And so it is pretty understandable that they have no interest in listening to economists. And in fact, on most issues, we do realize that economists and people entirely disagree and sometimes it's because there are some facts that are missing in the conversations that people don't have but sometimes it's because economists just have a total blind spot so what we are trying to do in the book is to lay aside um, any kind of all-knowing expertise and say well let's have let's have a conversation let's put the facts let's try to see what the facts are and then try to understand why the facts are the way they are and so we are hoping that we're hoping that it can start a, that it can start a conversation. I, I guess that has uh, sort of underlain your 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 career and your work. This sense that actually we don't know as much as we think necessarily. You know, when it comes to aid, when it comes to development work, and so so we need to kind of be very careful about the questions that we're asking and the assumptions we're making, and, and invest and investigate those empirically. You know, you've been studying human behavior in fine-grained detail for, for years now. And I, I wonder if it, that has, what you've learned or what has surprised you or what's changed your view about human behavior. I mean, it's a big question, but, but are there things that, 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 have, uh, that you wouldn't have guessed 20 years ago that you now uh, uh, believe, uh, believe in? Right. One of the, the core kind of tenets of our work forever, in a sense, has been that we really need to beware of intuitions. And economics, economists' intuitions are usually wrong. 
So are actually most people intuitions. Policymaker intuitions are also wrong. Uh, so one really, whenever you have an intuition of something might work or something might make a difference or people may behave this way or that way, you have to test it. And that's why we kind of developed the, the methods of, the, of doing randomized controlled trials because that gives you the very strong test of whatever uh, you want to find out. And you cannot always do them. So in the book, we rely a lot on other type of evidence. I think one of the, if I had to, of course, we learned many things over the, over the years. But if I have to, to point out one core thing, which I think runs counter to many people's intuition, both ex- economists and non-economists, is that people are much less sensitive to financial incentive than we think they are. So... A lot of economists are about, uh, you know, if there is a better job over here, people will move to take it. Or if taxes go up, people will stop working because work will not pay as much. Hmm. You name it, like any economic yeah. policy. And usually there is some economist is cranking behind to say, where, what are the financial incentives? I think one thing we have discovered all over our work uh, in developing world, but you also find in, in, in many, many pieces of empirical evidence in in the Western societies is people are much less sensitive to financial incentives and often what makes them tick is something different. So, for example, there are now many programs uh, around the whole world that give the poor cash transfers, um, usually in uh, in exchange of uh, obtaining preventive care for their kids or or, and sending them to school and some such. But once you have this cash transfer, then you don't really need to work anymore to make a living because you already have the cash transfer. And there have been many, many experiments around the world testing this out in middle-income countries, richer countries, poorer countries. And when you compare people who benefit from the transfer to exactly comparable people who don't, you don't find any effect on people's labor market participation. So zero. So the, the, the stereotype of the lazy welfare recipient, it's completely debunked by this type of evidence. So it's really interesting, this question of the way in which we think about the poor is, is one of the strong themes in your book. And you talk about kind of Victorian mindset. Uh, but that Victorian mindset, of course, is then overlaid with a kind of neoclassical and homo economicus view as well. So these two things go together. You've got a Victorian view, which is that the poor are just kind of squalid and dirty and immoral, uh, and their problem is a moral problem. And then you've got kind of neoclassical economics telling us that, in a sense, everything that people do is a reflection of their preferences in a world of rational utility maximization. And so therefore, the people at the bottom are the people at the bottom, because in a sense, they just made the wrong choices. And the people at the top are the people who have made the right choices. And everything has worked out rationally, according to the It's interesting the way in which these two ideas interact with each other to create these views about the poor. Yeah, I think the, the Victorian ethos got a booster shot in the Reagan slash Thatcher era very much fueled by neoclassical economics in its most like uh, bare-bone version, uh, which again was about incentive, which is that, okay, it's not, I'm not judging you, your preferences are your preferences, you know, you choose your life, but if you don't have a strong incentive to work, then you won't, and therefore, uh, if you have a possibility, then you will become a welfare queen. So the welfare queen of Reagan, in a sense, is the neoclassical version of the Victorian uh, dirty poor. 
And that has been with us in a very persistent way. Because after all, who did welfare reform in the U.S.? It's not even Reagan, although he had the rhetoric. It's Clinton, Mm -hmm. which means it's under a democratic administration in the U.S. that we ended welfare as we know it, which means we basically ended uh, a certain security for people who were in dire straits for a reason or another. The, the, The aid was replaced by something that was temporary. It is in the title, temporary assistance. And which was, uh, and there was much more incentive on uh, making work pay through um, basically income supplement, negative income taxes at low level of wages. Again, with the idea of we should give people incentive, etc. And I think there is also a parallel in in the new labor movement in the UK, which is that it's somehow got a dose of modernism, but underlying it is the same idea: is that at the end of the day. We really need to beware of people's tendency to exploit the system and to become lazy if they can. But it turns out that if, in fact, people are not really that much sensitive to financial incentive, then it is just incorrect that giving a generous welfare would discourage people from working. And paradoxically, we've known it in the U.S. for years because in the early 70s, they ran a series of experiments on uh, which gave people a guaranteed income. So it means they had a fixed transfer which was taxed away as they earned more. So you would imagine that people, you know, the, the very poor faced a very, very strong disincentive to work. And it had almost no impact on their labor supply. This is what all the reports at the time concluded. But it's something that I think economists have managed to keep to themselves some, somehow like little dirty secret of secret of economics because we kind of believe in incentives so much we cannot go public with well, that fact. It, it implies that people don't think like economists, which is, you know, probably quite hard for economists to accept. Yeah, so in, in another layer of this is that people don't act like economists think they act and they don't think like, as economists for themselves. Mm. But to some extent, they have actually drunk some of the magic Kool-Aid in the sense that when they think about other people as being sensitive to incentive. So we did an interesting ex- mm. little experiment for the book, which is we, we interviewed 10,000 people online and we asked 5,000 of them, randomly selected, if there was say, um, a fixed income, guaranteed income of $13,000 a year, would you stop working or would you work less? And then the other half, we said, if there was a universal basic income of $13,000 a year, would you stop working or would you work less? And when you ask them about themselves, they're like, no, 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 of course not, I would continue to work. But when you ask them about other people, they, stare, they, they think other people will stop working. And that, that has made the, the, the politics very complicated because the implication of the fact that people are not very sensitive to financial incentives are two and both important, in fact, three. One is you cannot really trust uh, the economy to go with the flow and adjust itself when there is a shock somewhere with people moving elsewhere because they're just not going to do it. That means that people, individual people, will need help. When they are victim of a shock, say they, they, they were made redundant, you cannot count on their own initiative and powerful drive to take them out of it because it's so hard. Number two... You can help them without making them lazy because people are not made lazy by, by welfare. Number three, you can actually pay for all of this with taxes because 
well, the rich are not middle easy by taxes either, it turns out. Mm. So we could actually increase tax rates with, with very little risk to the economy. On the very rich and even on the not so very rich. So in principle, as you know, sort of a rational point of view, it would tell you, fine, let's increase the tax rate somewhat, redistribute heavily, do things that will help people adjust when they are victim of a shock and try to really change the, the image of, uh, of welfare, not as something that is there to punish you to being poor, but that is there to somehow thank you for being the victim of the disruption for the rest of, on behalf of the rest of us. The problem is that even though that's the rational thing to do, the politics of it are going to be hard. Yeah, so I think that's that, that was the point I was going to come to, Esther, which is that it seems to me that part of the reason we have, have kind of adopted this kind of conditional attitude that, that poor people need to have conditions set upon them is in some ways a way of trying to legitimise. The welfare becomes delegitimised in the 70s. You know, there's a kind of general view, as you say in your book, overstated, that it's, it's not improved things, that it's worsened things, that the idealism... Uh, of the great society or whatever hasn't kind of delivered welfare state in the, in, the, in Europe hasn't delivered, and so to legitimise welfare we have you know and so you get phrases like a you know a, a hand up not a hand out. Do you reject that kind of conditionality entirely? I mean, for example, I'm friends with a woman called Louise Casey who's done a lot of work in this country around kind of troubled families, and she would argue very strongly that that troubled families, families that are quite dysfunctional in all sorts of ways, need structure, they need tough love as well as money. Or, to take one of the most successful programs in the world, Bolsa Familia, as I understand it, it was tweaked because it wasn't that popular the first time around, and then they strengthened the conditionality elements. They said, you must send your children yeah, to school. Yeah, I don't know what that program is. So Bolsa Familia it. Was, a, it was, it was a, like a universal basic income for families of children, and its first iteration just gave the money to the families on the kind of UBI principles. It's simple. It reduces corruption, whatever. But it wasn't very popular and it didn't seem to be working. So what Lula did, the president, was he, the second iteration, he tightened up the condition. He said, you must send your children to school and you must look for work. And that at that point, it then became much more popular as a program. So are you completely rejecting that story of conditionality and structure? So let me separate the, the the economics and the political. And I'm not naive in the sense that I do understand that the, the need to keep the politics on board. On the pure economics, the conditional cash transfers, the type of Bolsa Familia programs, have been replicated in many, many countries. They started in Mexico, and then there was the one in Brazil, and it's been replicated in many places. And they have been very successful in increasing uh, people's uh, um, kids' education and health so that's great. However, when you uh, look at the impact of the conditionality per se, so there's, I was involved in an experiment in Mexico where we uh, compared the traditional conditional cash transfer where you really get cut out if your kids don't go to school with a version of the program where it was just said, oh, here is some money, by the way, it can help you send your kids to school. But there was no formal conditionality. It was what we call the label cash transfer, which is, here is some money to help you send your kids to school. But the money was given regardless. And then there was also a comparison group. So when we did that, we didn't find any added effect of the strong conditionality. In fact, if anything, the program without conditionality was more effective because the program with conditionality was cutting out families who thought they were not going to qualify. Mm. So some people selected out of the program 
And then it turned out there was no incentive effect anyways. So it is, I think, in reality, the strict conditionalities are not necessary. And in fact, it's been evaluated in several contexts to compare the strict conditionality to no conditionality. The framing is, is important, I think. And I think in many cases, people need more than money. People need uh, some structured help to achieve their goals. So, for example, the, a framing of a program in terms of education is helpful. Even more helpful, or at least as a complement, would be to have excellent preschools and schools, very, very well-resourced preschools and schools, which is a, it's not giving away money, but it's, it would require, require budget to do it. When an adult, for example, loses their job, I don't think they just want the money. So my 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 view on on a pure UBI in a in a country like the US or the UK or in France is probably not what people need or want, because what people are mobilized by is dignity. They want a status. They want a place in life. And for a lot of people, this sense of self-respect comes from doing a job that is meaningful. And that's why it's so costly for people to lose their job after 20 years doing the same thing. They've gone through the rank, they have a place, and suddenly they lose their job. One of the reasons why they decide not to move to another county or not to take another job is that starting from scratch removes all of the meaning of what they've been doing till now and what they will do in the future. But by the same token, just giving them straight money that is also not going to help. I mean, it is helping in the sense that they will avoid them to starve, but it's not going to achieve, uh, it's not going to make them feel, um, make them whole. So one needs to to think about the problem they're facing, which is, I need uh, a meaningful job. There, there is a program in the US which is very, very tiny, which is called the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, but it's very, very effective on people who manage to get on it. It gives people cash in the form of extending their unemployment insurance if they decide to get training, and it subsidizes their training to some extent. So one thing that I would, for example, do is not just give people a UBI, but really expand a program of that type, not just for people who lose their job because of trade, but for people who lose their job because of regulation, for example, against some type of industries that are more polluting than others, for people who lose their job because of automation. One way to think about it would be to model it um, after the the, the GI Bill. Hmm. You know, the veterans came back and said, look, you sacrificed yourself for us as a society, and here is what we can do for you. And the GI Bill is much more generous than the Trade Adjustment Program. One could call the Trade Adjustment Program the Veteran of Disruption Bill. (laughs) change that would change you know that would change the perspective it's not we are not helping you because you're a loser we are helping you because the economy goes to some serious disruption and you you are paying the cost on behalf of all of us Mm, and we We, need you you and we need you and we need you to come back in the same way that we need the veterans we need your drive we need your energy so i wouldn't go to just unconditional money i agree with that i would go to for very poor disrupted family excellent education system that would cost money. By the way, this would also create jobs, which would help employ my, you know, those veterans that we can retrain in if those jobs in preschools and schools were extremely well paid and seen as high status. So that creates jobs that will never be replaced by computers. So that's an, another way to spend money that is uh, neither 
hand out, nor pull yourself by your bootstrap. You've been lazy long, long yeah. enough. I mean, I would, I, I, because the RSA are big advocates of UBI, I'd just say that I think you talk about alt, you know, ultra low UBI, that, that we advocate UBI is just a better form of welfare rather than a kind of something to live on. But, you know, we have more and more people in this country fall into absolute destitution with a very punitive welfare system. So we would advocate a very modest universal basic income just because it's a more effective way. And anyway, but that's... that's yeah, that, so th- that, this is... No, I, that, I do... That, that's, that's I entirely agree with yeah. that, actually. And also it strengthens work incentives because, of course, you don't lose it if you get a job, whereas most welfare systems, they withdraw, you know, so your, your marginal tax rate if you're poor is incredibly high. But I want to move on because there's one chapter in the book in particular where you look at the process by which we come to think of the other. You know, yes. it's primarily the, the, the chapter focused on race, but it's not just about race. It's just the way in which we perceive other people. Absolutely. And, and, and the message you have in that chapter is really intriguing, I think, because what you say is, is one thing that is worrying and then one thing that's comforting. So that what you say is that we have a pretty deep predisposition to be biased against people not like us. You know, and that's just like seems to be a kind of human characteristic, you know, whatever it goes back to. And on the other hand, it doesn't take much for us to be snapped out of that. So it is who we are, but it isn't fate. Is is that a reasonable summary of the of your argument? Yeah, I think the, the the argument is that you are very quick to define the other, or we are very quick to define the other. So we relate these experiments that were done in, you know, sending kids to an island and the two groups of kids are on two different sides of the island and they you know, develop a bond with each other and when they are put back together again, they, they compete like crazy. In a sense, that's the bad thing that we are very quick to make friends and define against the enemy. But there are two hopeful messages in that experiment. One is that it's completely arbitrary who you decide your friends are and therefore it doesn't have to be attached to a strong label like the race or the ethnic group or the language you speak or the religion you have. And the second thing is that when the kids got faced with a challenge that required them working together, they overcame uh, this animosity that they started with and the two groups were able to kind of work together again. So that's, a, you know, that's, that, that's an allegory, but it, it it's not an allegory, it's an actual experiment mm. that was done um, uh, by two uh, uh, sociologists but it reflects well enough, I think, the way in which we come to develop in-group attachment and polarization and the way in which we can get out of them. And it seems that when people come in contact with each other, in particular when kids get in contact with people from other groups that they've never met before, they're, they're more likely to like them. So when kids in India were forced to interact with poor kids whom they normally never seen uh, because of a school law program that forced private school to take some poor kids in. The rich kids who got exposed to the poor kids were then much more likely to be willing to work with them and to mm. play with them and to like them. So that does suggest that one could reduce the polarization and the animosity against other groups by enforcing contacts through schools, through neighborhoods, through any type of so, forum. So I, I completely agree with that. And I think that because of who we are 
and our predispositions in diverse, fast-changing societies, you need social engineering. You know, I mean, we're, not, we're never going to go as far as the kind of Singaporeans, for example, in, in the way in which they you know, force people to live literally side by side yes. to ensure that the ethnic divisions there don't become too impossible. The problem, it seems to me, with social engineering is not so much that people are hostile to it. They just don't trust government to get it right. They don't like government interfering in their lives. Now, I've got to have a life in policymaking. You know, I used to work for for the prime minister, head of policy. But what does your analysis tell you about about policy? So, you know, one of the challenges is that your work requires years and years to be able to test whether things work. But politicians have a very short kind of time frame. There is a general kind of loss of faith in the nature of policy, the way policy is made, a move to more either devolved forms or more experimental forms, you know, almost the imagination of a designer, less than the imagination of a policymaker. So I'm interested in your kind of perspectives about, about does policy work in the modern world and what do we have to do differently to make policy have a better hit rate? Yeah, I think you, you are absolutely right to point out that there is a crisis of legitimacy of government in general and we have a chapter where we describe where it came from i think it has come again i would blame economists in in that you know <laughs> you have milton friedman saying you know i've never seen a tax cut i don't like or you know government is the, the government is not the is not the solution government is a problem is something that many economists have kind of absorbed as as the as the mantra so we do need to go back to rebuild the legitimacy of government in, in the public, and it's going to, to be step by step. Our approach of doing experiments takes a long time, but the advantage is we are not starting from scratch. You know, after all, we have a whole book full mm. of natural and real experiments that one could draw on to get, to get started with some things. The experimental approach that some cities have undertaken or some ministry at a point or another, in fact, uh, in the UK, DFID is um, is an organization. The, the, the UK Aid mm. is an organization that is at the forefront of being innovative and looking for where is the evidence and of all of the uh, of the aid organization worldwide. So there is that creative spirit, I think, very much present in the UK, and the experimental mindset is good, although. One has to do policy a little faster, so there is always a combination of I'm going to experiment on this side to show that I'm trying to get better at any time. And in parallel, I'm also going to launch something big that is preferably you know, evidence-based and we can, we can rely upon. So in the UK, also in education, there, there is an education endowment fund that is... Uh, uh, that has been again at the forefront, I think, internationally. You know, their big challenge, Esther, is that is that they rate the EF, but the, the 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 real problem they've got is teachers still don't use. The, you know, it, it, institutions still don't know, don't bring those insights in, as our resistance to the evidence is still so strong, or organisational inertia is still so strong. So it's remarkable that the EF toolkit, which is a a, a, a slide which shows the uh, cost of an intervention, the efficacy of intervention, the strength of the research base. It's an incredibly simple way to understand what works. And it's, you know, really clear. But yeah, even though I see that slide at every conference I go to about education, if you go into schools, uh, most of it is still not actually being acted on. Yes. So there is always like a, a bit of an effort. And in a sense, that's why we started Poverty Action Lab. Like, the last mile. <laughs> that's awesome. exactly yeah. why we started Poverty Action Lab as an institution or JPAL, which is the name of our, of our network, because 
we realize we can do the research and talk about it till we are blue in the face. But to get buy-in in policymaking and on the ground, it takes right. a lot of actual groundwork. And it's patient work. It's not going to happen over mm-hmm. overnight, but I, I see no reason to be discouraged. Because if you take, for example, the development sector, the international development, since 1990, if you're looking for one reason to be hopeful, you can look at what happened to the lives of the poor. First of all, there are much fewer of them in the world, people living in extreme poverty. It's been halved since 1990. Second of all, uh, even in countries that have remained extremely poor, where they have no increase in GDP, there have been tremendous progress on child mortality, on mother uh, mortality in childbirth, on the number of kids who go to school, um, on the death uh, from, from malaria, which have literally plummeted. And those examples, I think, are the product of a success of a policymaking that has been willing to be more pragmatic in what it was going to go after. Okay, we are going to put all the stops behind, say, malaria and evidence-based. So if you take the example of malaria, malaria's cases went down with no miracle cure. We still don't have a vaccine. Hopefully there will be one soon. Uh, There is a drug that works pretty well, but one of the main contributors is the simple contrivance of people to sleep under insecticide-treated bed nets. And early on, when insecticide-treated bed nets were shown to be effective medically, uh, there was a big debate on, uh, again, you cannot uh, hand them out for free because people are not going to use them well. And there was anecdotes of people using them as fishing net, (laughs) whatever. And then there was actually a series of experiments showing that Actually, you give them for free, people use them. And therefore, if you want maximum coverage, give them for free. And that piece of evidence actually made its way in policymaking, even though I think the the natural inclination would have been to sell them. That piece of evidence, which was replicated many ways, made its way and finally it became the thing and the bandits were distributed in big waves, uh, in big camps, etc. for free. The coverage has increased tremendously in Africa and with it the, the uh, reduction in millions and millions of, of, of deaths of malaria. So that's an example to show that in the developing world, mm. you see many hopeful examples where evidence actually came in and got integrated in the policymaking I think in education in the UK, it's going to come. It's going to come because at the end of the day, you're going to have enough teachers saying, well, down with the, you know, with the ideology or whatever, let mm. me try and something that works. These guys say that tutoring might work. Let me try tutoring. And then they will talk to their friends and, and their friends will talk to their friends and it will diffuse. Last question, uh, uh, Esther, which is the, the book is in a, in a way an attempt to save economics from itself. But what struck me, because I'm a sociologist, is that, I mean, I ask this question in the context of polarization. We talk about social polarization, but but I, I was thinking about your book about academic polarization. <laughs> because in a sense, no psychologist would ever have subscribed to the model of human motivation that economists struggled under for decades and still is the kind of orthodoxy in economics. You bring sociological imagination, anthropological information, imagination to your book. In a way, whilst I think your book is a great way of kind of save economics, what it really says to me is we have to have a multidisciplinary approach. That 
the the whole notion that sociologists look at the world this way and economists look at the world this way and and they have fundamentally different views of human they sit in the same kind of you know social science faculty in a university and they have fundamentally different accounts of the basis of human motivation that's pretty shocking really and and don't we really just need to overcome that and and, and require when it comes to changing the world tackling poverty improving education to demand multidisciplinary approaches so I think there are disciplinary sort of strengths and uh, approaches that are fine to maintain. But I do think it's very important for the discipline to talk to each other and to learn from each other. So one of my most delightful uh, experiences as a researcher in recent years is my collaboration with a cognitive psychologist, where we are working together on actually uh, kids learning mathematics in school. The development of the brain is her her domain. She had done all of her experiments in labs, and I kind of encouraged her to come with me to the field and embed that in the field and deal with all the complexities that go with it. So that's an example of a collaboration where I think we are both bringing in our uh, disciplinary strengths, where she's really, this is uh, Liz Pelke from Harvard, she's really at the top of her game in terms of understanding how kids learn, uh, mathematics in particular. And I come in with both my expertise in running experiments. So that's just that's just one example. You were talking about sociology, I think. You know, I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I was trained as a social scientist more broadly uh, and as a historian before becoming an economist. And, you know, all of the interesting questions come from from there often. I do think that all of these disciplines would benefit from actually doing joint projects mm. as opposed to just reading each other. Well, Esther, thank you very much. It's been fascinating talking to you. Your book, Good Economics for Hard Times, is is out now. And I would say to anybody who, who either thinks they don't understand economics or who hates economics, read this book and it will change your mind. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So in, it, it, it's not every week we have a Nobel Prize winner on our programme. That was fascinating, wasn't it? It was, it was fascinating and it was a real privilege to have her here. You know, I, I thought for one thing it was interesting the way that Esther is basically exposed to economists, the, 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 how strange they are, how weird they are. <laughs> you know, because she's she's shown them that ordinary people do not think like economists. They, they don't respond to economic incentives in the way that the economists theorise uh, that they do. So that's been quite a bitter pill for the field to swallow. But the, the award of this prize uh, is evidence that they have finally uh, swallowed it. Yeah, and I found it really useful because I'm delivering my annual lecture and I'm, I'm talking about economic insecurity. And I want to argue in some ways that economic insecurity and the scale of economic insecurity is a reflection of the model of human behaviour and our kind of assumption that the fundamental things that drive people and in a sense ought to drive people are kind of acquisitiveness and fear. And her book, you know, very much challenges that view. So it's really, really useful to me uh, as well. Um, now, we can't 
go off air, as it were, before we talk about the election. We've got to be very careful, of course, because the RSA is a charity, so we mustn't express anything that sounds like we're giving political support to any particular party. But nevertheless, I'm going to give you my three thoughts so far, Ian, and then when we meet again in a couple of weeks, uh, maybe you can give me your three thoughts halfway through. So here's my three thoughts at the beginning. The first of all, it is remarkably similar to 2017. That is kind of, I just have to say that. You know, 2017, we thought the election would all be about Brexit, but maybe it won't be. Uh, we thought Jeremy Corbyn was in a pretty parlous position and was likely to do extremely badly. A lot of people think that again. We thought the Liberal Democrats would do really well. We're thinking that again. But let's remember, in 2017, what happened was within a week, Jeremy Corbyn had pushed aside Tim Farron. He was the only opposition. The Tory party's campaign, the wheels fell off. So, you know, it is just interesting that we've got an election two years on and it starts in almost exactly the same kind of position. And okay, Boris Johnson looks a lot more strong than Theresa May did, but Theresa May looked strong at the beginning of 2017. People forget, you know, that she didn't look weak at the beginning of the campaign. She looked like exactly what the country needed, you know, stable, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my first one. Do you agree? Um, I agree, but then I also don't think it's that big a surprise because it's only two years later. You know, usually when we have an election, we've had four or five years in between and, and a lot more has, has changed. Um, we're now getting these elections in quick succession, so maybe we shouldn't be surprised when they start to look quite similar. I guess so, but I suppose I, I, I think because everyone keeps talking about how dynamic the world is, how fast changing the world is. <laughs> right. Maybe it's just, we, well, maybe we'll be, we're moving faster, but we're just moving faster and going in, in circles. Okay, the second thing, which is something that I think I might be wrong about, so I shouldn't say that as if it's a big revelation, but I really thought, I'm really, I was surprised when Boris Johnson called the election because I thought he would not want to be in a situation where he had to defend the deal in the campaign because for two reasons. One, because in the politics that we're in, the kind of populist politics we're in, defending a deal which involves compromises and trade-offs versus all kinds of kind of imaginary possibilities, unicorns of various kinds, is just a difficult thing to do. People don't like trade-offs and compromises. Uh, and secondly, because he would be attacked from both sides, be attacked from Remain for, for the deal being too dangerous and attacked from Brexit Party for it being, you know, not sufficiently kind of robust. What I would say is, so far... I don't see much sign of that. So far, the kind of, uh, let's just get it done. Let's not focus on the detail of the deal. Let's just get it over the... But I'm surprised that even this early on, the deal isn't under more scrutiny. No, it's been a bit of a messy start to the campaign. Quite hard to work out what the shape of it is, and particularly hard to work out actually what the Tory strategy is, which I, I wasn't expecting. I thought they'd come to this election fully prepared with a very kind of sharp strategy and be fast out of the blocks. But so far, they just seem a little bit unfocused and, and Labour, Labour has had a, a stronger start. And then the final thought I've had is actually, does this all kind of depend on what happens on the last weekend? That is to say, you know, we'll go through the motions and all the parties and the debates and all of this. And then on the Saturday before the election, it'll become absolutely clear that if the Conservatives win, we'll be out of European Union within a month. And if the Conservatives don't get a majority, we'll almost certainly have a second referendum because there's no other way of resolving the issue. So in a way, do we go through this kind of phony war and then... In the final five days, everyone knows in the end this vote is going to – it is actually implicitly a kind of second referendum. And that will lead then to a completely different focus from people and tactical voting and all of that. Do you think that, that that's likely to happen? 
the real fundamental question of this election is, is it shaping up to be a four-party, a four-way contest or, or a two-way contest? Some early signs that it's it's snapping back to the old two-way shape, but it's a bit too too early to say. Uh, if it continues to do that, then yeah, suddenly the, the, cho- the choice at the end will be much starker. Well... As usual, Ian, it's been great uh, chatting with you. That's uh, it for Polarised. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. We'd really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast. We were positively rated by the BBC in their podcast show the other day, so we're all feeling rather... Thank you. We we positively rate the BBC. And also, just to add to this, our... Uh, esteemed producer James Shield has got another job so he'll be with us a few more weeks so you need to listen to Polarise because we're running out of Jamesness. so make sure you tune in in future Polarise was presented by Matthew Taylor and Ian Leslie and we were brought to you by the RSA Hello, I'm Ian Leslie. It's a privilege to be here with one of the world's greatest thinkers and with Efsa Dufo, <laughs> the Nobel Prize winning economist. <laughs>